Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm your host, Dean Johnson, sitting in for my good buddy Jeff Hayden tonight, who's a little under the weather. Tonight's topic, Between Consenting Adults, Kink, Consent, and the Law. Kink, Fetish, Leather, People are saying that sadomasochism has gone mainstream. The SM-themed novel Fifty Shades of Grey sold over 150 million copies. The movie version set a box office record for February movie debuts, surpassing the previous record holder, Mel Gibson's The Passions of Christ. I'm just saying. Um, Our beloved Bay Area has become a worldwide mecca for those who choose to explore alternative lifestyles and sexualities. San Francisco now boasts a leather and LGBT plus cultural district. And the Folsom Street Fair, an S&M-themed street fair, which annually attracts upwards of 400,000 people from around the world, was once described by one of my TV anchors as the largest event of its kind in the world. This may all be good fun, but I want you to know, listeners, that tonight's show was inspired by some more serious considerations. Um, Two legal cases in particular, one of which I handled personally and one of which was handled by a colleague. In both cases, couples had been involved in long-term relationships that included kinky sex. One member of the couple decided that all of this had been non-consensual. And the other member of the couple wound up facing a lengthy prison sentence. So tonight's questions. Does alternative sexuality come with physical, emotional, and for our purposes, most importantly, legal consequences? And can you, listener, get in trouble for what goes on between consenting adults in the privacy of your own home? Something tells me that a lot of you will want to join in with comments and questions, so feel free to give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134 if you're in the Bay Area. If you're outside the Bay Area, call us on our dime at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as you listen, please bear three things in mind. First, our guests are here tonight to educate and inform you. They cannot provide legal opinions or provide psychological advice on the air as every case is different. Second, I'm honestly not sure where this conversation is going tonight, but it may include graphic references to sexual situations. If you're offended or disturbed by such references, please turn off the radio and read a good book. And finally, the opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily the opinions of KALW, NPR, the Bar Association of San Francisco or San Mateo, or any of our guests' employers. Our guests tonight have devoted their professional lives to helping people navigate the psychological, social, and legal issues surrounding alternative lifestyles, kink, fetishes, and BDSM. Dr. Anna Randall is a Bay Area psychotherapist and sex therapist and the co-founder and executive director of the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance, or TASHRA. 
She is a former board member of the Society of Janus, which is the second oldest BDSM education organization in the U.S. Anna has a master's of social work from Boston University, a doctorate in human sexuality, and a master's in public health from San Francisco's Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. Her research with Tashra focuses on the health and well-being of those involved in kink, BDSM, fetish, and non-monogamy. She directs a worldwide team of volunteers who are building guidelines for the informed and sensitive care of people whose erotic interests are often misunderstood and pathologized. Anna's interest in kink has been lifelong, but she came out as kinky to herself and her relationships about 20 years ago. Dr. Richard Sprout is a research psychologist in developmental science and lecturer in the Department of Human Development and Women's Studies at Cal State East Bay. David uh, Richard, I'm sorry, Richard holds a PhD in developmental psychology from Berkeley. He is the co-author with David Ortman of Sexual Outsiders: Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. He is a He is part of Tashra, and he and Dr. Randall most recently presented a seminar for Tashra entitled Playing with the Boundaries of Consent, Consensual Non-Consent Scenes and Relationships. Richard, Anna, welcome. Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, You know, as, as our listeners probably have recognized, I like to start our discussion with a big question. And I suspect, statistically speaking, that about a third of our listeners already know the answer to this question, but about two-thirds of them um, are asking it to themselves. And my question, my big question for the night, what is kink and where does it come from? I mean, how is it that some people can be tied up, beaten, verbally humiliated, sexually assaulted, or do these things to other people and think that to be a good time? Okay. Shall I begin? Okay. Please do. All right. So kink is an umbrella term. It covers quite a lot of different things. And some of them involve um, the er- having an erotic charge because of some power difference. Someone is more powerful, more in control. The other person is uh, agreeing to, submitting to. So a lot of what happens in in kink is about power. And that can be expressed in so many different ways and so many different things. Um, But some of it is more about sensuality, about experiencing different kinds of sensations and and not about power. And so there's a lot of like fetishes, uh, fascinations with body parts or different kinds of clothing, material, anything that's sort of associated with um, a person uh, might become uh, an object of fascination. And so that becomes a big part of kink. Some of it is about um, headspace. Headspace is a term that's used in the kink community to really talk about, for some people, this is almost like I'm going to go into an ecstatic state. Um, so the floggings and the beatings and the, and the in, and intense bondage is all about achieving a different uh, state of mind. 
um, very similar to like Runner's High, very similar to, um, you know, sort of like out-of-body experiences. Um, Sometimes it's about taking on a particular role. Uh, For some, it includes things like pretending to be a puppy, a pony, a kitty. Uh, Sometimes it's about pretending to, you know, uh, for a certain amount of time uh, to be a slave or an object. Um, So kink covers this huge range of very different kinds of uh, behaviors that people find arousing, rewarding. Not always sexual, but there is often quite a lot of overlap with sex. So so you can see that trying to study it um, is a bit of a challenge. So a question, you know, I, I said at the at the beginning, there's almost a cliche that kink is going mainstream. And I wonder, from what you said, um, I'm wondering, is kink really going mainstream or is it a stereotype that's going mainstream? I mean, we, people think of Fifty Shades of Grey. And the story is, uh, for those of you who've been living in a cave and don't know, <laughs> um, the, the, the male protagonist of Fifty Shades of Grey is a broken individual who suffers, uh, as a child, who suffers serious abuse and um, takes out his abuse uh, in, in his adult life uh, by basically tying up and flogging women who look like his mother. And I think that's kind of the image that people have of mm-hmm. S&M, but that's not quite accurate, is it? Not at all. No. I mean, I, it's interesting because Fifty Shades of Grey, which is now 10, 12 years, years old, right, is one of many books that have come out over many years. I mean, you know, the story of O is, you know, a well-known book from a long time ago, um, you know, and these stories come out in in pieces. Well, you know, there's a story like what happened with Fifty Shades of Grey, and people often from the outside they hear some of the storylines in there, and there's erotic components of there that people really you know get get into and get off on, right? And there's a there's a huge genre right now um, that has been is building right now in. Um, in uh, literature, um, in stories, and in, in, um, where people are having very erotic stories that have to do with consent, um, you know, there's a whole um, uh, area called dubcon right now in the in the in the literature in in where people are reading about dubious consent, right? And there's a whole genre there. Um, so yeah, it is it going mainstream. In that there's a lot more um, stories being written about it. There's TV shows that are coming out on it. We have multiple TV shows that are coming out on it. So from that perspective, it is coming out of the shadows in that, um, you know, the erotic lives of people are seen so much more openly today than they were 15, 20, 30 50 years ago, for sure. So I do think from that perspective, the idea that people can have broad ideas of what is erotic, what is exciting for them, has become much more mainstreamed. I think the idea that people now can share and talk about what their interests and and, and kinks are and their you know erotic you know the things that really jazz them, I think is much more uh, commonly you know commonly spoken about. 
Yeah, I know. One of my favorite shows is a show called Billions, in mm-hmm. which two of the main characters yes. are involved in an S&M relationship. Right. One of them runs for public office and comes out mm-hmm. as uh, being involved in kink and gets elected because people think, oh, if he's going to be honest about this, he'll be honest to me about everything. And that's actually based on a real story. Because no, there, there, there is a there is a California um, official um, uh, who was himself also kinky and ran for public office and decided I, to come out before somebody else outed him, and um, and it was not a problem at all with the community. They were fine with it. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did, can we name names? Um, I just know that it was the mayor of Watsonville. That's all I know okay. at one time. I, I, I don't I, know his name. I can't remember his oh, name right now. I'm either. off the top of my I, head. I, I didn't come prepared. I'm going to look. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. Um, but the 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 image that we get uh, is not the same as the experience that you have mm-hmm. uh, I, most of the time. Uh, and I know you have talked, Anna, about your experience mm-hmm. with kink uh, on podcast and such. Could I, I wish you'd tell us a little bit about that, because I think that tells us more about the reality mm-hmm. than the, the public image. You know, what I often say is that I've been kinky since I was four years old. Mm-hmm. Right. How did you know? Uh, how did I know back then? I mean, when I look back on that, um, I just knew that there were that I found these erotic these things that were kind of erotic or exciting to me back then. I didn't really identify them as erotic per se because when you're that young you don't. All I knew is that there were things that really excited me. And like I, for example, I I mean I'm old enough, I hate to say this, I'm going to really date myself here. Um I am old enough that when I was like Mm, six, five, six, seven, I would go down in the basement and I would turn on TV and the old Flash Gordon episodes would be shown on TV. This was in Chicago, WGN. And they would show these episodes and the old pre-code pre, um, movies from before 1935, some of these were incredibly erotic. And they had guys, you know, they had Ming the Merciless with a whip and all of this. And all of that, I was watching old B-movies of, you know, um, things that would, you know, happening in, in, in like, people being kidnapped and, and um, old, uh, old horror films. I loved all that stuff. But here I was. I was this Midwestern Catholic girl, and I thought I was possessed by the devil. I really did. And I held tremendous guilt and tremendous shame about what my interests were for years and years and years. And only, you know, maybe about 20 years ago did I suddenly kind of realize that this was not so horrible. And I and this is part of the reason I became a sex therapist is because I didn't want other people to go through what I went through. I it did horrible things to me thinking that what my interests were were so, so deviant and so evil and and stuff. And so when I decided to go into this field, I really delved deep into it to try and figure out what it was that was so erotic about this for me. And I decided to just stop disliking myself for this and recognize that this was just a core part of what was what turns me on and that's you know that's what happened 20 years ago and i've been now i'm you know executive director of tashra with richard and we talk about kink all day long that's what we do yes Uh, you know somehow i just had had a a flashback to, no pun intended to the the Flash Gordon movie where Ming sends his daughter off to the chamber to be tortured and he yes. looks after her and says, 
you know, she's a strange girl. I think she'll probably like it. Oh, my God. I don't remember that. Oh, That's yes. very funny. That's uh, very funny. But so, so how did that turn out for you when you, when you came out? I mean, what I realized was that my relationships had been kinky my entire life. I just didn't have a name for it. I had been in relationships that were very power differential based. You know, I was living in New York City and, you know, was involved in, you know, in a relationship where I would get up in the middle of the night and greet this boyfriend who would come in from like his bartending job and I would be all dressed up and make dinner for him and all this. I couldn't tell anybody I was doing this. It was like this, you know, progressive New York City, you know, Wall Street person. And the idea that I was doing this was such a throwback. And I thought it was horrible and evil. And like, no, I can't tell anybody that I was doing that sort of stuff. So when I finally came out in, in, you know, 20 years ago, I started realizing, like, I didn't have to go for jerks anymore. You know, like, it, you know, it's like, you know, you know, dominant does not equal jerk. And it took me years to figure that out. And, and when I came into the scene in, in 20 years ago, I really had to learn that I didn't have to, you know, subject myself to people who were not going to treat me well, but that I could find other people that were really into this, like me, who would treat this ethically and would treat me with respect. And it really changed my life. I mean, I think for me, it's what allowed me to step into a position of, like, personal empowerment. And you mentioned the term, the scene. Mm -hmm. Uh What's the scene? Well, (laughs) the word is used in two different ways. Definitely the scene meaning the community, the the network of people, uh, different groups, educational opportunities, things like the Folsom Street Fair. These are all things about the scene, right? It's basically the community where uh, the social spaces where people can, you know, really uh, let their freak flag fly. Um, Then the scene can also be, or a scene, can also be a session, uh, a, a sort of conscious time when we are going to do this kink thing. Uh, here's the start, here's the end, and there's some stuff we do before, there's some stuff we do after, but the scene itself is the enactment of our kink fantasies and our kink desires. So uh, sometimes you'll hear it uh, being used in both ways. Now, Anna was using it in terms of the community way, right? Coming into the scene is discovering the kink community, and and that's one of the things I think that is actually really important, both psychologically and perhaps legally, and that is um, there's a community, there is a subculture, there is a, a history, there is a, a, a set of practices and values and beliefs that um, sort of contain and couch the uh, these desires. And enables us to do it in a way that is um, positive and is ethical uh, rather than uh, fumbling around and and causing harm. All right. I want to follow up on that. But first, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm your host, Dean Johnson, and tonight we're discussing alternative lifestyles, kink, consent, and the law with our guests, sex therapist Dr. Anna Randall and psychologist Dr. Richard Sprout. If you have any questions or comments, our phone number is 
815-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside of the local dialing area, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question that's on topic. You're not limited to the exact point that we're talking about at the time. All right, you know, I would like to follow up with both of you about community. Um, as, you know, as a lawyer and just as a practical person, I would think that if you are being tied up, beaten, um, whatever in somebody's home, you really want to know who that person is. And I guess my question is, how do you separate the good guys from the bad guys? Mm-hmm. And how does, how, how does the community deal with um, what I imagine is the occasional exploitation and abuse? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really great question. When we're talking about, like, how do you know? How do you know you're safe? Um, so many people come into this because they've been fantasizing and thinking about this stuff for years on end. I mean, our, the research shows that, you know, people have these kinds of desires, you know, before they enter into, um, you know, in, into their teen years. And for other people, they, they pick it up later, right? And so when it comes to kind of fulfilling these desires, people often, you know, they're out there, you know, going online or they're meeting people through um, a dating app or whatever. And what we often talk about in in the community is the importance of getting people's references. Um, You know, if somebody really is seriously in this, um, you ask them, you say to them, you know, anybody else that you've, you know, encountered it's somebody else that you're familiar with, you know, I'd like to know who they are. I mean, the very first time I started to play as a as a kinky person, the first guy that I played with, who's still a friend of mine, um, he he gave me three names of three people. And I literally contacted the three people. And they said, oh, my God, he's such a great guy. Oh, he's wonderful with new people. He's great with new what we call newbies. And it was this incredibly powerful experience of just being able to know that I could talk to other people and find out who, who, who he was. Jack from San Francisco is on the line. Jack, what's up? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I've been listening to your program for a long time. It's a wonderful but unfortunately, my question isn't related to anything about dating. It's more have to do with the easement issue with a few commercial properties. Okay, Jack. Well, this this is not the show to talk about that. Um, if you've got a legal question that's outside of our topic, um, wherever you live, call your county bar association. They have a lawyer's referral service. You can sign up for a half-hour consultation with a, with a lawyer who's vetted in that area. Ask your questions, and whatever you do between um, you and the lawyer is uh, up to your negotiations after that. Okay? Okay. All right. All right. Well, well, thanks for calling, Jack. And speaking of negotiations, um, you talked about the stuff you do before and the stuff you do after the actual activity. Um, I I know from reading your book that the mantra in the the S&M community is safe, sane, and consensual, and the negotiation supposedly plays a large part. Can can you tell me about that? Yes. Um, So... 
Um, especially if you've gone to a number of different classes or conferences where um, a kink education happens, BDSM workshops happen, um, there is always a lot of talk about if you're going to do this activity, these are the things you need to ask your partner before you start. These are the things you need to tell your partner before you start. And so generally they tend to be, okay, let's talk about my own personal boundaries. I can only go this far. I can only take this much uh, pain, this much intense sensation. Sometimes it's, you know, we say, uh, don't forget, talk about your, uh, your health, right? Are you, if you're on certain kinds of medications that affect your blood pressure, you probably want to know that before you start tying people up. Uh, especially if you're tying their hands above their head or something like that. So there's like health issues. There's like these are uh, these are my physical limitations. Uh, these are my emotional limitations. Um, whatever you do, don't use this word because it just sends me off into a huge, you know, rage. Um, don't, uh, don't make fun of me. If you're going to do a humiliation as, as some aspect of the scene, don't make fun of this part. Don't make fun of my, you know, my thighs. Don't make fun of my intelligence. Um, so we say that in negotiating a scene, there are a lot of things to cover, to talk about in terms of this is what works for me. This is what will take me out of the scene and ruin it. Uh, these are the things that I cannot do uh, physically, emotionally, ethically, and uh, with the expectation that those things will be honored and people will uh, play then within those boundaries. So I, I got to say, uh, I'm somewhat skeptical about the whole negotiation idea. I mean, it mm -hmm. seems to me. Just as a matter of psychology, if somebody is about to bring to life your deepest held fantasies, mm -hmm. the last thing in the world, I mean, even lawyers hate to do this. The last thing in the world you want to do is whip out a contract and start negotiating. I mean, we don't even enjoy that. Does that really happen? People, people in kink are actually, they fetishize the negotiation process. It is a turn on. I mean, when, when you know, as a sex therapist, the, the things that increase erotic um, desire are things like longing, anticipation, right? And when you can take somebody and you're, let's say, texting somebody and you're talking about what we're going to do and we're talking about what are your limits and what are the things you enjoyed the last time you were with somebody, to a kinky person, that's a major turn on. And so suddenly this idea of like talking about what we're going to do later is not the same as what we're going to do later. What it is is we're going to set up what we're going to do later. And, yeah, that's going to unfold. But at least I'm going to know what are the things we're going to play with, what are the ways we're going to play, how are you going to blindfold me, what are the ways that, you know, I know that I'm safe. Those things really are erotic turn-ons. And as a sex therapist, I'm saying to you, you should start talking more about sex when it comes to in advance because that's the thing that makes it really hot. You know, so, you know, that's the stuff people have to remember is that it does. It isn't a turn off. It's a turn on. It, yes. If you if you do it right, there are certainly 
I think in some ways, some people think, oh, my gosh, it has to be very dry. Uh, here's a list. Um, let's just go through and just say yes or no. But what Anna's talking about is those people who are, who are really into this um, recognize that it's part of it's part of foreplay. It is part of anticipation and longing. And that can be, um, you know, it, and while you're doing it, there is the emphasis on trying to do this in a, in a safe and sane way, in an ethical way. You're trying to show that you care about the other person. And so that's a huge turn on for a lot of people is that mm-hmm. and, and a, a big reason why a lot of people do kink is because it's so bonding. It's so connecting to expose yourself and your deepest desires in that way is incredibly. So you really want to know, does the other person care? So it, it sounds like Fifty Shades got it wrong. I mean, that there's an ongoing theme in the movie um, where the male and female character are negotiating, but mm-hmm. she never signs the contract. Right. And as a lawyer, I'm sitting there thinking, where are his attorneys? I mean, I practiced in Seattle, and I know there's lots of good lawyers up there. Yeah, but they don't <laughs> hold up in court, Dean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't hold up in court. This I, is the thing, and this is the thing we tell people. Yeah, you can sign these contracts, but they're not legally binding. That's exactly where I was going. The contracts, so people recognize that this doesn't insulate you from liability. This doesn't keep you from litigation. The two examples that I cited in the beginning Mm -hmm. are quite real. I mean, even if there had been written contracts um, as opposed to all sorts of circumstantial evidence about um, consent, um, that doesn't constitute a legal defense, and people recognize that. Well, I I think what you're talking about, too, is there's there are cases that come up. I get called on these cases, cases similar to something like you, where I get called about something that's really gone bad, you know, where there's been a, a, a scene when somebody's engaged with somebody and something's gone bad. More often than not, when I hear about these scenes, alcohol and drugs are usually involved. And so the idea of consent when we were talking about, you know, sexual activity where alcohol and drugs are involved, it kind of flies out the window at that point. But when we're talking about stuff that is more around an interpersonal relationship that may have gone bad, right, sometimes we have to look at, like, what are the motivations people have for that, right? And so often what we see is this comes up in custody cases a lot where somebody is in the throes of a, of a nasty divorce. And what they do is they'll suddenly, you know, sometimes this is used, is used as a way of kind of manipulating when, in, you know, and to try and get something out of the other party. Um, and then there are cases where obviously somebody has been engaging in something where they didn't feel that they had consent, where there was a way that they didn't feel like they could get out of it. But I think that, you know, those kinds of, um, you know, the contracts and the, and the negotiations is really important. So I think we have to take a few seconds to identify our station, and we'll be right back. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616. Or visit sfbar.org for more information. Back to you. 
You know, Anna, when you were talking about your experiences in in the kink community, um, it just struck me that this sounds very much, kink sounds very much like a sexual orientation. And when I was doing research on this, I I felt like I was being transported back to the 40s and 50s. I, I read in the court cases in California, which are very bad for people involved in BDSM, all of the stereotypes that you used to hear about LGBT people. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when San Francisco PD sent undercover cops into gay bars to bust people for being gay. And I'm old enough to remember when gay people were treated simultaneously as mentally ill and criminals. And I see the same sort of stereotypes emerging in the BDSM community. Am I seeing that right? And what do we do about it if that's true? Um, You are seeing it right. It is exactly the same sort of uh, stories and beliefs and prejudices um, there's a, a, a good, I would say, part of the problem is that psychiatry and psychology have, uh, for a very long time, without a lot of evidence, pathologized, right, and called this a mental illness. They used to call it a paraphilia. Now it's called a paraphilic disorder. Um, and the issue around that was always this uh, assertion that it well if you were uh, into sadism or masochism or you had a fetish um, it was very likely you also were involved in other paraphilias including pedophilia and so just by guilt by association if you were interested in some of these areas alternative desires and sexualities you were a danger to children. And being a danger to children is exactly what, you know, they used to say about gay and lesbian people. Sure. Um, so the, the, there, there is this weird, very complex set of interlocking prejudices. Um, but if you listen to them, they sound like the same story they say about anybody whose society has rejected. So... How do you respond to that? You respond to it the same way, like the gay and lesbian community uh, responded to it. And that is, uh, there was this huge effort, right, to both decriminalize, but also to uh, come out, recognizing that the more that you know people, the more that people will realize they're not these monsters. Yeah, but the community, I, the the watershed case in my mind for the LGBT community was Lawrence versus Texas, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, we, we've had cases involving gay rights before and we gave them short shrift because we didn't really understand the significance of same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, the BDSM kink community on the cusp of a Lawrence versus Texas moment, or where is that? I, I don't know, but there is this one wrinkle, and that is the association of BDSM with violence. And that makes it a little bit different, um, this idea that, for example, right, in our court cases, that you cannot consent to being assaulted. Um, and 
So the minute that violence or abuse or assault is brought into the picture, it suddenly becomes very, very difficult to argue that, you know, we're not monsters unless you can really show that it's not abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's not violence. But on the surface, you know, someone's tied up and they're getting paddled with a big giant piece of wood. It kind of looks like that. And that can be a, a real difficult thing to overcome. Yeah, and that's that's the case law in, in California. There's a case called Samuels, which is just about the only case that deals with this situation and involved somebody being tied up and somebody being whipped. Um, and the guy who was tied up and whipped came into court and said, hey, I consented to this. I actually enjoyed it. And the court said, no, no, no. You are obviously sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being mentally ill, you're not capable of consent. Um, so there's no defense. And in fact, the, um, as we were talking about before the show, uh, the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom reports that there has been not one single appellate case in which consent has been used as, successfully as a defense in a case involving a BDSM relationship. So what do we do about that? I think what you just brought up is really important. Um, in Since the DSM-5 was put out in 2013, there was a sh- major shift in the, in the DSM-5. The DSM-5, which is the Diagnostical and St- Statistical Manual, it's the, it's the Bible for, um, for therapists, um, psychiatrists, th- and the like. Um, it, there was a major change, and that major change has actually resulted in some very different sorts of um, case law that's actually been occurring. Um, the 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 DSM-5 established that there's two things. One is called paraphilia. A paraphilia is a, an erotic interest in something um, that we've been describing, you know, that's an, uh, an uncommon or what they call unusual sexual um, or erotic interest in, in, in certain kinds of behaviors and the like. A paraphilia in and in itself is not a disorder. It's not a psychiatric problem. It's just that I like something, you know. They also then established something called a paraphilic disorder, and a paraphilic disorder meant you were either acting on something without consent, right? You were distressed about it, causing you great, you know, emotional distress about the thing. And though in that that characteristic, the characterizing of it differently in the DSM made a huge difference when it came to particularly um, cases regarding child custody. Up until 2013, um, National Coalition of Sexual Freedom, National Coalition for Sexual Freedom had had been act, acting and still acts as a place where people come to them when they're having problems around like a court case, like a custody case. Those cases dropped off dramatically after 2013. So the depathologizing the, the de- of this as an interest has really made a big difference. So from the, from the psychiatric perspective, um, when we're not dealing with violence, when we're talking about somebody doing something against consent... The problem is that the paraphilia shouldn't even be in the DSM as far as I'm concerned because if somebody's doing something and injuring somebody like um, sexual sadism, somebody's doing something where they're, you know, killing somebody or maiming somebody um, against their consent, that's non-consent. That's not BDSM. That's not kink. That's the kind of things that we handle every day. That's a crime. That's a crime. Yeah, Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Those are that's not and you know what we're talking about is not crimes. What we're talking about are erotic interests that are out of the mainstream that may involve um you know, negotiating a, a lack of consent or an, an, a giving up of consent for a period of time. But we're not talking about somebody doing something that's non-consensual with violence against somebody without their ability to consent or get away. And in those cases, that's where you guys step in, where law comes in. And so we need to separate those. And that separation is going to do a lot for kind of helping people understand that the people that are doing this are not the individuals who are being picked up and charged with horrible crimes. Those are different individuals. Those people aren't kinky. Those people are using these sexual activities as a part of a violence they're doing against somebody. But that doesn't mean that they're identifying themselves as kinky. Yeah, isn't part of the problem, though, and in fact, this was the problem in the two cases I mentioned, is where one party withdraws their consent after the fact. In other words, you're involved in a relationship for a long period of time. As far as everybody can tell, you're enjoying this relationship, you look forward to it, you gain benefit from it, and then suddenly one party decides, oh, none of that was consensual, mm -hmm. or says that in court to mm -hmm. gain some sort of advantage. In, in the one case I was talking about, there was an employer-employee relationship in the real world. How do we deal with those, or do we? Well, in fact, I, I, Anna, I think you've been asked about this, too. I've been asked a couple of times in the past five years or so uh, to perhaps consult on cases where, in fact, one person did violate and did violence uh, and did sexual assault, but then claimed it was kink or it was BDSM or it was consensual because we're just doing kink. And 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 so that question comes up. It's like, so how do you figure out what's kink and what's not? Um, especially if it looks the same, at least on the surface. And this is where I think, uh, where I always go is is sort of, does does this person have any kind of connection to the organized kink community? Have they gone to workshops? Have they taken classes? Have they? Uh, done all of these things that actually teach what consent is and how you manage it and how you uh, all the different steps that the community has this wealth of wisdom about when it comes to consent. And most of the time, no, they don't have any connection. Yeah. They've never done a class. They've just uh, seen it on the Internet or they've seen it on a TV show and just assumed that, well, that means it's okay. To sure. just do whatever they want without actually getting consent. So anything to take it out of the arena of, and I hate to use this term, but everybody uses it, he said, she said. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Any sort of circumstantial evidence showing Absolutely. an effort to solicit um, prior consent. I was um, consulting with a, a case down in um, in uh, San Jose a few years ago, and one of the things that the um, the the defense attorney and I were chatting about was, you know, going through this person's house and figuring, saying, what kinds of books were in the house? Did they have books on kink? Did they have books on how to do it? 
And, and, you know, did you ask, as Richard said, what kind of classes you've attended? Things like that. Those kinds of things can be admit. you know, when you come into, into, a, into, into court, you know, you're able to say this person knows these things. These are the, these are the, this is the information this person is trained in these things. And that stuff is really helpful when you're trying to, you know, come against somebody's charge where they're saying, you know, no, um, this was completely, you know, unconsensual and you didn't get involved and, and, and I, you know, I didn't do anything that I wanted to do. You're really trying to show that, yes, people were going to classes together, they were doing things, and people often do them together. So, yeah, you have the opportunity there to try and give some um, underlying support to whatever the whatever the argument is against saying that this is um, a violent act. Sure. Yeah. In California, we have the defense called the Mayberry defense, which, as far as I know, has nothing to do with Andy Griffith. But it says that if there was actual consent or a reasonable belief that the other party gave consent, then that becomes a defense to some of the crimes that might arise out of a Mm -hmm. BDSM relationship. And, of course, all those surrounding circumstances then become important evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm your host, Dean Johnson, and tonight we're discussing alternative lifestyles, kink, consent, and the law with our guests, sex therapist Dr. Anna Randall and psychologist Dr. Richard Sprout. If you have any questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside of the local dialing area, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You know, we, we are rapidly running out of time. Oh, uh, my gosh. This, this time has flown, and this has been very enlightening. But if you would, I'd like to take the last few minutes for you to talk to our listeners who either are involved in kink or thinking about getting involved in kink and talk about how they can go about minimizing, and I know you can't eliminate, but minimizing the physical risks, the psychological and emotional risks, and, of course, the legal risks involved in getting involved in this kind of activity. Well, I would say there are two main ways that pop into my mind. One is there are actually some very good books out there written by knowledgeable kink uh, community members that include things like this is here are some tips on negotiation. Here are some tips on using safe words uh, during a scene. Um, uh, So there are a number of books out there that are actually pretty good. Um, And, you know, they're not the usual, you know, romance fantasies or porn or anything else like that. Uh, They are nonfiction and uh, include a lot of, I think, advice. Um, So, you know, I can think of a few off the top of my head. One is uh, Playing Well with Others, I really like, by a couple of very well-respected community educators. Um. Then there is uh, there are groups. There are social educational groups uh, like the Society of Janus in San Francisco. Uh, there are some in other cities. Some of them are very small, 
Some of them are pretty big, uh, but they all, especially because of the pandemic, they all have had education online. Uh, you can, you know, uh, call in from anywhere, and some of them are still continuing that. So finding, I think, a social educational kink group is a good place to start. I also think that it's, um, you know, a process where people are kind of coming out to themselves about this. And so for a lot of people, they need someone to talk to. So finding therapists that they can talk to about this. Um, If it's something that you are concerned about because you have a position like in a kind of sensitive job, one of the things you might want to do is is be able to um, write up stuff so that you have it for yourself, like writing up a kind of your own statement of what this behavior and interest is for yourself. Negotiate with yourself. And kind of negotiating with yourself yeah. so that you're, you're prepared. Finding other people, if you're in a position like you're a school teacher, for instance, finding other school teachers to talk to in the kink community. I mean, there's a, there's a large online um, uh, site called um, FetLife. Um, in um, much to the chagrin of Facebook, it's often called the Facebook of, for kinky people. <laughs> um, but um, whether or not people are going on to FetLife, you can find groups on FetLife where you might find somebody else who is also a teacher. You can talk to them about how they how they protect themselves. And um, and that is you know easier in some places than others. And so often in smaller and more rural areas, people often have to make smaller communities and those communities can be very um, uh, cover all genders and all sexual orientations and interests. Um, but people often will come together in that kind of power of having somebody to talk to. Um, when it comes to learning more, I mean, there's a proliferation of kink on on TikTok right now. Not all of it is accurate, um, as we all say in, in all of this. That it's, it's not all accurate anywhere, everywhere. But um, there's a lot of people being educated, especially young people. There's a lot of young people coming into the scene, into this, into this community, into this scene. We've seen a, a big influx in the last five to ten years. Of you know, folks. I, I know the younger generation much more comfortable with LGBT yeah. and much more open about that. Is the same true about BDSM and kink? I absolutely yes. think so, and I think it's part of the exploration that young people are doing when they're, you know, finding themselves. I think it's much more um, understandable. Some of it is um, a little surprising sometimes to us as, you know, we're, uh, we kind of see what's kind of happening around some of this stuff, which is a whole other topic for maybe another conversation around consensual yep. non-consent. But, um, you know, there are a lot of young people coming in, and this is a way that they're exploring. And then there are a lot of older people who are kind of finding this later in life. And so this idea idea of just being able to find other people so that you can learn about this and, and know how to play safely. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it is it's actually kind of hard to fathom, but, you know, the smartphone was only invented back in 2007, right? So since then, being a teenager is completely different than it used to be, including access to all sorts of things about sexuality, LGBTQ, a kink and BDSM, and um, and you know now that you're just running around with a computer in your hand all the time and on social media all the time, um, it is a very different world uh, for younger people. And so, we not only are we seeing them come into the community, but they also already know a lot about what they like and what they don't like. Uh, because they've done all of this exploration online. And it's hard often for me uh, 
to think back and imagine what that would have been like because mm-hmm. I, that was certainly not my experience. My experience was, you know, magazines and, and you know, some porn. And that was about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you said uh, when we were talking earlier, 50, for this generation, Fifty Shades of Grey is sort of like Facebook. It's really old hat and passe. That's right. What are they into? Um, wow, they're into all kinds of exciting and interesting things. I mean, we're seeing an emerging, we're seeing emerging communities within our own, you know, within the BDSM scene. Um, you know, ten years ago, there was uh, the the what's often called the pup scene, right? Right, where, where individuals who love to kind of dress up and wear leather masks that make them look like pups or, or kittens or you know other kinds of critters. And um, that was, for a lot of um, particularly young gay men, that has been a big um, way they've come into the BDSM community because it, it's a playful, kind of youthful way of coming in. We see a lot of folks coming in from the furry community. Um, oh, you're going to have to explain what that ah, is. Right. <laughs> and if people who, you know, who enjoy dressing up in characters that are um, anthropomorphic. So they, you know, they're kind of anthropomorphizing, you know, whether it's a kitten or or a or a um, a wolf or a fox, um, a, a fox or whatever, a and and for we're seeing even though that's a it's not all of the furry community it's a subset of the furry community, um, are are folks involved in kink, and so we're seeing people in the hypno kink community we're seeing in the bam, bam, bimbification community right, there's okay, all, all right, kinds hold on, of hold stuff on, hold on okay you, you got to explain terms now <laughs> yeah I mean the I mean hypno kink community so there's a lot of people who are into erotic hypnosis. And okay. the idea that you can kind of hypnotize somebody and have them, you know, you know, be under your will, right? There are people who are, you know, loving dressing up is, as um, um, kind of Barbie and, and Barbie dolls and, and, and Ken dolls and stuff or dressing up in, in – in, it's just fascinating all these emerging kind of ways people are coming into the kink scene. It's fascinating. Okay, so coming into the kink scene, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of things as we close out. Um, you both obviously ha- have known the scene for a long time, have been in the scene, are educators in the scene. Do's and don'ts. What should people be doing? What should they not be doing? Well, they definitely should be talking a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, that's all part of that negotiation. Um, I recognize that it is kind of challenging to be able to say, these are my likes and these are my dislikes, this is yes, this is no, when you're still figuring it out. And so definitely going slow, definitely doing this with people you trust, definitely doing it after, even with people you know and trust, doing it after a lot of conversation um, those are definitely very good strategies for getting into this. I think another thing to to think about is, you know, what is the environment that you're living in, right? You know, are you in a place where you can express yourself um, comfortably? You know, you may live in a part of the country where that's not easy. You may live in a part of, of California that that's not easy, right? And so the idea of... Um, of Finding community is really important. Finding yourself is really important. Getting help if you need. So many people come to me and the first two questions they ask is, why am I kinky? And is there something wrong with me? And what, I, what, what do you say when they ask that? 
I say to them, lots of things excite lots of people, you know, and so are, you know, why are you kinky? There's a lot of reasons. That's a whole nother story around there's, you know, what do we know about why people create erotic maps that include stuff like this? You know, there's many theories about it. But what we do know is that these things are established young. They're established pre, you know, what's erotic to us is often established way before we even go enter into puberty. And so we think of them as exciting before they become erotic when we when our when our genitals turn on in our in our in our in our uh, adolescent years. And so what people are really excited about is what we're trying to help people see that, you know, as long as it's consensual, as long as you've got, you know, you know yourself, you shouldn't necessarily dislike yourself over these things. Okay, we're about out of time, but I think we have one caller, Ruth from Berkeley. Ruth, are you on the line? Yes, I am. And Hi. I, what I want to say, this is uh, an observance, and it is that the span of subject matter that is covered on Jeff Hayden's program is enormous. From The, the big one that comes from me is Eastman, that uh, when he was on Jeff's program, and then the next day he was, he was you know, being... Uh, 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 unquestioned, and then tonight's program and the subject matter and the ethics uh, of it and uh, being, of, being, of, of the experience being um, uh, examined, I, I want to thank you for this. Well, you know, it's, it's our absolute pleasure, and I want to say you have made my day, and my buddy Jeff is home not feeling well tonight, and I think you've made his evening as well. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. And also, uh, there was one, it's the difference between um, uh, the respect and contempt. So much respect is being given to this subject matter tonight. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. I mean, that's what we wanted to do. As I said in the beginning, I think this is a a serious civil rights issue, and it's mm-hmm. something that we wanted to bring to the public and treat it with honesty and respect and get some intelligent, educated, experienced guests on here to talk about the realities. Well, we actually appreciate how much work you did, actually, um, Dean, because we often, when we're talking to people outside of this universe, they don't do as much research as you did tonight to help us feel like we were you know, talking to you around a topic that you yourself had really spent some time really working on. Well, you know, I as, I, as people know, I work in radio and TV, and I think the one thing that differentiates me from other quote-unquote pundits is I do the research. <laughs> I want to know my subject. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got about a minute each what would you like to say in a minute um, to people who are considering or involved in this community? Well, I think we need to say there are two things that Tasha is doing. One is uh, we mentioned earlier, and that is the International Kink Health Study. We are hoping to really uh, find out more about kink and health. The other is we do trainings for medical people and for therapists. So uh, you can learn a lot more. We go into lots of different topics just like this. Tashra is um, Tashra, T-A-S-H-R-A dot org. And our Kink Health study is on kinkhealth.org is where you can learn about our Kink Health study, which is a great way to get involved and to learn more. If you're a part of the kink community and want to learn more about your health and well-being, we really ask you to come and enjoy, come and join that study. 
most enlightening, and once again, we've only scratched the surface. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM. Our guests have been psychologist and sex therapist Dr. Anna Randall and research psychologist Dr. Richard Sprout, author of Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. A big thanks to our guest. A big thanks to you. A big thanks to Joanna Marr, our producer at The Controls. I'm Dean Johnson. Good night. And remember, always stand up for your legal rights.